conservation doesn't have to be pristine wilderness. Mm-hmm. You know, I can work with a, a cattle rancher and we can look at having a 25 meter buffer along the creek that runs through his land mm-hmm. and we'll provide him an off water, offsite watering system. And now we've conserved something. We've conserved a riparian area. We've improved water quality. We've helped fisheries. So, mm-hmm. so that's a slight, that's a, I, I've come from a young biologist where, no, if it's not pristine landscape and I can look around in all directions without seeing a single building, it's mm-hmm. not conservation to, all right, there's cows on one side of the fence, there isn't on the other, we've now conserved something. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. I'm Matthew Kristoff. On this podcast, we talk about environmental sciences with researchers and practitioners to try and figure out what sustainability is and how we can accomplish it. Uh, today's episode, I brought on Todd Zimmerling. Todd Zimmerling is the CEO of the Alberta Conservation Association. I've had him on in the past and uh, I wanted to bring him on and talk about conservation in a very broad sense, you know, kind of what is conservation? How do we measure success? What are the hurdles that we face as a society to, you know, doing conservation better or whether or not our values, you know, how, how we value conservation is the right way to value it. Or if it's just, you know, our own biases that, 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 uh, that force us to do things the way we do it. So it's a, <laughs> a very philosophical conversation. I wouldn't say there's anything solid in here. Um, it was just an interesting conversation to have, you know, trying to suss these problems out, these, these, these global problems, problems around, um, you know, just maintaining sustainability for all people forever, for all species, you know, making it better for everybody. So it was a really cool conversation. I think you guys will like it a lot. Um, I was absolutely exhausted when we recorded this and I make next to no sense. So I apologize if I ask questions that are very confusing, juvenile and are, (laughs) I sound to be half awake because I sort of was, uh, Todd brought it all home though. He, uh, he he knows how to, uh, he knows how to say words. (laughs) Whereas I, uh, I seem to have forgotten mine today. So, uh, yeah, forgive me for my lack of conversational ability (laughs) and thanks Todd so much for uh for you know helping me bring this conversation forward because I I don't think I could have done it (laughs) the way I normally do so thanks a lot and uh yeah sponsors for this podcast is uh Greenlink Forestry they've been supporting me from the beginning and they're doing good work in the forest industry and uh second a second sponsor is uh Damaged Timber Damaged Timber is an apparel company they give 10% of all their sales towards uh environmental sciences scholarship for students going into environmental sciences so check them out at damagetimber.com put in your force 10 at checkout and get 10 percent off really cool company um yeah he's got really cool stuff he makes he always uh puts quality before everything else so check them out and most importantly for this year 2019 west fraser is the uh most important sponsor they are have put a lot of funding towards this to try and make sure that it's uh it's continuing to have these interesting conversations with people and uh, I really appreciate their support in, you know, furthering forest resources and making sure that we have a sustainable future, right? So thanks a lot, Wes Fraser. I really appreciate uh, everything you guys do. So thanks. And uh, without any further screwing around, 
let's dive into this thing. It's uh, Todd and I talking about, you know, conservation and conservation success and how we measure it and, and how we value it and all kinds of interesting, deep philosophical stuff that is very easy to argue against. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, yeah, here we go. I had actually weird. I had a weird question to start with, which is one that it's a really it's it's nothing. Don't worry, you're good. <laughs> oh, weird question. <laughs> Don't All be right. nervous. Um, <laughs> so, in lots of in modern culture, you hear just a lot of people say outdoors. Like, I like the outdoors. I love the outdoors and that kind of stuff, right? But in conservation writing and outdoor writing, I hear a lot of out of doors. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, yeah, okay. certainly. Yeah, I've tried to figure out why this is. If there's an origin, if there's somebody that started this, what, do you do? You, which one's right? Outdoors <laughs> or out of doors? Are they both right? <laughs> I, I think they're both right. I don't know why one is different than the other. To be completely honest, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. there's something interesting. Like lots of conservation writers i find say out of doors yeah i don't know what that it does it sound better does it make you sound more hoity-toity maybe I don't maybe because i i mean i would say outdoors not out of doors so yeah uh, out of doors I, sounds like extra extra stuff to say yeah just unnecessary i don't know, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. maybe it's british i don't know <laughs> yeah who knows yeah um okay anyways <laughs> that was just a weird question i had that i tried finding the answer to and i'm like what is the origin of out of doors yeah. versus outdoors and who knows? It's just a, I guess it was just a weird divergence of words at some point in our yeah. history. <laughs> um, okay, so your like your role as CEO, right? Of, yes. A, of the Alberta Conservation Association. So obviously, you spent a lot of time thinking about conservation and all the different roles that it plays. Um, how would you define conservation? Because I think there's there's a few different ways, right? Yeah. Well, and you're right. It's a few different ways, and I guess I would have a few different definitions depending upon the specific. Um, instance we're talking about but i mean in general i guess i would say conservation is is ensuring that uh well i'm as a wildlife biologist right away i think of wildlife uh, yeah that's so i think automatically of ensuring there is habitat and species that are going to be around into the future so doing right. what we can to ensure that mm-hmm. a broader perspective you know if you're looking at the sort of a broader ecosystem state is, is ensuring that we have uh, the habitat and the species um, around that will be around forever, whether it's aquatic or or terrestrial, or whether it's a you know a bug or a fish or that sort of thing. So, what steps have to be taken to ensure that you will have those those individual species on the landscape into the future? And that's that's really what conservation is about. Right. So, um, <laughs> I have a million thoughts in my head. I'm trying to organize them. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I tried to write them down on paper and where to go from here, but um, so. Yeah. So would you say just trying to, would you say minimizing human impact is part of that? Or would you say, uh, like for me, it's kind of, I think of it as minimizing negative impacts, right? While maximizing, I don't even know how to word it, <laughs> but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird one. Cause conservation in my mind is one where like, okay, we want nature to remain nature and we just wanted to leave it as nature, right? That's what we want. We want those species to exist there forever and we want to be able to enjoy them and that kind of stuff, right? The very basic level of conservation is that. Um, do you think that there's a like there's room for people in the idea of conservation? 
Well, I think that, and I think there has to be room for people in conservation, in you know, wildlife or fisheries management, whatever you're talking about. When it, because in the end, it, it's it's people. You're not managing wildlife; you're managing people. Mm. That's really what it comes down to. And as you said, trying to minimize impacts, absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, there's plenty of instances where habitats uh, are being uh, impacted because people love them too much. Yeah. Right. People want to go and see them, and so there's too much traffic. So it is certainly the impact of of humans on on the ecosystem that you're constantly trying to deal with. So uh, minimizing that impact uh, and sometimes, you know, you're redirecting it someplace else for specific areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes you're trying to educate the public as to how they can, you know, uh, not love something to death. Yeah. Those kinds of things happen all the time. So yeah, it's certainly, and I think there's that realization that we as, as, as uh, individuals, whether we eat meat, whether we're vegans, whether, uh, you know, we live in a city or a country, wherever, we're all having some level of impact. Big time, uh, it, of course. Yeah, it, 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 the level of impact might vary, but everybody's having impact from being here in the first place. So for how sure. do we minimize that impact? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, for individuals, it changes whether or not it's a matter of how do I have an impact on that green space in my local community. Therefore, I'm conserving that green space. Mm-hmm. Or how do I have an uh, impact or reduce my impact on one of our uh, parks, our national parks? Yeah. You know, so it's it, sure. it varies with the individual. And this ties in. So the parks actually ties in nicely to my next thought was you hear people, th- I think a lot of people and a lot of conservation organizations seem to feel like, like I would agree, like they're managing human impact on these species, right? And trying to reverse that human impact. That totally makes sense. Yeah, perfect. Um, do you think... That a lot of places or a lot of organizations, conservation organizations, feel like uh, humans, like good conservation, would be void of human impact, or do you think that humans? Because, like for me, I feel like we're we're a part of this ecosystem, the same as everything else, right? So, I wonder if, like for example, one 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 example that I've heard uh, Stephen Ranella give was I'd be okay with there being a big chunk of land that was totally conserved, right? In quotations, preserved, and it's all, everything's natural and unaffected by human beings, but people aren't allowed to go in there, right? So is, is that conservation in your mind or is there a different definition than that? Oh, I think most definitely most people consider that conservation. Now, whether or not that's a reality for conservation is a different question. You know, that, right. that's like saying, well, we'll just keep every people, everybody in a bubble in the city and everything else will be left natural. And now we've mm-hmm. conserved all. Certainly you have, if, you're, if your goal is to conserve species and habitats, sure, keep people away, keep, keep human impacts away, you'll conserve them. Um, the, the reality is uh, fish and wildlife species don't need us to, to manage them if we're not there impacting in the first place. But the reality is that's not going to exist. Right. You just, it's just no, it's, it's a fallacy that it will exist. My concern would be if it did exist, if people never get the opportunity to enjoy it, never get the opportunity to appreciate it, does it start to lose value? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess in today's day and age, people uh, value and appreciate a lot of things they've never got to actually go see because they can see it on the internet or TV or something. So sure. maybe, maybe you can keep that appreciation and love for it that way but yeah. i would think that without uh people somebody being able to go in and see this you know place we're setting aside at least some or at least the possibility of being able to go see it yeah all kinds of people i know want to go see the arctic yeah 99 percent of them never will <laughs> but yeah. the idea that it's there is something that people really like that that yeah. 
the, I guess the dream that someday I could possibly go as opposed to it's a great place, but I'll never get to go there. Yeah. And, and I think that would change the perspective of a lot of people as to how important it is if, if you can never, if there's not even that possibility of going and enjoying it. Yeah. And that's an interesting point. No, I, I, I can follow you there for sure. And I'm lately, I've been doing a lot of conversations with indigenous people around their, you know, their role in the landscape, right. And what they used to do pre-colonization and all that kind of stuff. And one example that was brought to my attention was uh, the parks, right? So when, you know, Banff National Park, Jasper National Park, all these parks were created, indigenous people were booted off the land, right? And told you can't, you can't be here in the name of conservation, right? Right. And if you speak to indigenous communities, they'll say, well, we were living for thousands of years in perfect balance with nature, managing it and being a part of it and burning it and hunting on it and understanding the dynamics between species and themselves right and working you know they would argue that they're they're they were part of the ecosystem right not other than the way we are now absolutely yeah right and i would and i would i would tend to agree with that from from what i've been you know what i've picked up on um so doing like like obviously stuff like that we look back at, at at booting indigenous people off of their off of their traditional territory and Ja- or Jasper and Bam and stuff like that. Not the greatest move, obviously. We look back on it now and realize kind of there was some mistakes with that. Well, particularly since if you consider the level impact that has occurred since then with us going and putting a Banff and a Jasper in the middle of yeah. a national park. Somehow right? we think that, yeah, making ski slopes, highways, and giant towns is less impactful than having indigenous people living. Precisely, yeah. right? It's interesting. Yeah. It is kind of effed up, right? Like yeah. it's, So it's and I, th- I think that's kind of what I was getting at when I talk about that void of humans, right? So if you speak to indigenous people, they have, you could, there, there's an argument to be made that they evolved with the you know North American forest, right? They came, Absolutely. Right, yeah. especially uh, the boreal forest, right? Uh, post-glaciation, they came over, you know, there's an argument they evolved with it. So they are uh, a crucial part of that landscape, right? Um, and I, I guess I'm just trying to point out that humans are, we are of nature, right? And I've said this countless times on this podcast, right? We are nature in and of itself, right? But we've kind of gotten away from those values of sustainability and living with nature and part of nature. We've kind of decided we're going to, I don't know what it is, uh, have dominion over it. And <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think that's, those are exactly the words, have dominion over it. There's no doubt about it. That's the attitude of, of a lot of people for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and the reality is, yeah, human beings evolved in nature and, and certainly, you know, indigenous uh, people in, in this province evolved with nature. But the reality is right now, yeah, you know, are we part of nature? I, I don't know that we are. We can be, sure. certainly, but I would argue the average person is not i would agree um you know we we have the ability to completely destroy nature yeah and uh there's no other species that has that ability to completely destroy nature as quickly oh, as we can at this point for, that's sure. for sure we yeah. seem to take ours and then not worry about the consequences yeah. of that right so yeah. no i would totally agree that yeah. our 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 way of life as a societal level is definitely not sustainable right but somehow we seem to think we are so i guess that's where conservation steps in and we've kind of gotten away from that sustainable way of living the way indigenous people did and I guess the ultimate goal would be to get back to some kind of form of that, right? But um, what that looks like, I have no idea. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a fascinating conversation to try and wrap your head around, right? Like how do you how do you incorporate all of our values into a sustainable method to live with nature in a way that's sustainable for everything, right? Like it's it's tough, especially when you have a growing population of 
you know, approaching 10 billion people. And we have, with that, we have the, you know, the extraction of resources to try and support that. And yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, no, I think, I think you've hit upon it there. If you look at, you know, our human population, the reality is no, it's not sustainable the way we're going. And, and eventually that's going to, I mean, back when I was a kid, climate change was not the issue. It was human population growth. And we were supposed to look at what we're going to do that. The issue was back then we were going to want run out of resources. We wouldn't have enough oil to support us. So therefore, you know, we'd have to start looking over to, that's no longer a concern. No, we, we seem to be able to find oil everywhere we look. And now yeah. we're going the other way that, well, you know, it's climate change. We have to do it. But really the root of climate change is having too many people. Yeah. Sounds and like we so, need a black dot policy. Well, you know, <laughs> you know some of that. You know. <laughs> That's know, not going to happen, we, obviously. No. Oh, exactly. I'm not promoting that. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, if, if you're talking about uh, on the conservation side, it, it also comes down to what, what are people concerned about conserving? Um, very few people ever raise an eyebrow over the loss of some mite lives in the soil that you've never seen or heard of before. Yeah. And we, we, we lose species like that all the time without even knowing it. Yeah. Um, now, if you're talking to grizzly bear, people are very concerned about some of that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing conservation and we're trying to, to ensure species and habits are left for the future, but it's still very selective, even whether we realize it or not, it's selective type of conservation because it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, basically the things that pull our heartstrings and, yeah. and, uh, Certainly, uh, megafauna are, are uh, you know, the species that get most attention for sure, or a species that gets a really good ad campaign on the internet. Yeah, you totally. Know, the sexy ones, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it, and that was kind of part of what I wanted to get to was just like how our emotions play into conservation, right? How do we know that our motives, like, so we tell ourselves that we're trying to do conservation to you know, promote good nature and, and, and healthy landscapes and that kind of stuff, right? And to make sure that species don't go extinct and X, Y, and Z, right? Um, how do we know that we're not just imposing our own emotional state onto the natural world? And how do we know that that is beneficial? Because like you said, right? Like the grizzly bear and caribou and those kind of wolves, that kind of thing, they're, they're very sexy. People want to save them. But like you said, if the Mites are going extinct. No one bats an eye. They don't even doesn't matter, right? But arguably, it's it's possible that those mites might have a much bigger role to play than the grizzly bear ever did, right? So, um, yeah. What like what role do you think emotion has in conservation? Because I think it's inevitable. We're emotional beings, right? We we definitely we impose it on. Um, is there a role to play, or should we be trying to eliminate emotion from those decisions? Well, I I would argue, I guess years ago, um there was probably less emotion involved in these kinds of decisions because the general public was less involved. Uh, I think, um, and and not that that's a good or bad thing, it's just it was different. mm -hmm. If you look at, let's say, uh, where science and general biologists, uh, there was a day back, I have a PhD, so I was Dr. Zimmerling, and I would be looked upon with esteem, and people would bow to me and that sort of stuff. And what, (laughs) what I would say, people would just accept that, oh, well, he's educated, he must know what he's talking about, we will just do what he says. Right. Clearly, that's not the case. Now, no one bows to me, I can tell you that much. That's <laughs> too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, as, as sort of society's evolved, uh, things have changed completely where, where decisions around what's important uh, mm-hmm. in the natural world are now being made by the general public. We do consultations with everybody to talk about what is important to various groups. And yep. those. So 
right away you get more emotion involved. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, you bring the internet into play. Well, now, well, look at what happened with uh, the one story of a single turtle having a straw stuck up its nose. Oh, yeah, that was... Right? So now, <laughs> we have policies guess what? Now. <laughs> we now don't have plastic straws in the world. Yeah. Just like that, yeah. it changed overnight. Yeah. Now, that's not the first time a straw has been stuck in an animal, <laughs> for sure, right? Yeah, but yeah. the right image, the right marketing campaign, emotion got involved, and boom, we got a change. It's a good change. Great. Oh, yeah. But why couldn't we have done it 20 years ago? More importantly, in my mind, is have we missed the boat here? Well, we're not going to have straws. Should we maybe ask the question of how were those straws getting into the water in the first place? We clearly have a problem with our entire process here. Yeah. Right. So, but emotion got involved. It made a change for the positive. That's a good point. No doubt about it. I like that. Yeah. The, the concern I have is that emotional change may not have been driven by a biologist or anybody with any type of biological background or thinking on conservation whatsoever. It could be, a myriad of other reasons that somebody decides to push one of these things. And, yeah, yeah, well, and you sure. might get a change overnight mm -hmm. that maybe isn't beneficial on mm -hmm. the conservation side of things. That's that's one of the clues. But it's the world we live in today. The world is now run by social media and the public opinion. Yeah, which is, it's, it's interesting, right? Like public opinion is, I think ultimately without public opinion, nothing can flourish, right? Like we have to, we have to get there as a society in order for real change to be made, right? Um, as long as it's educated public opinion, and that's that's, well, that's hard, one of yeah. our problems, right? You know, if you can do it in 140 characters, then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, people are educated, which you know is clearly not the case in a lot of a lot of times. Yeah, well, no, yeah. exactly, right? Um, yeah, that ties in nicely to uh, something I was thinking about regarding. I was just listening to something regarding. Uh, I think it was burrowing owls, mm -hmm. and um, this woman was talking about their breeding owl or breeding owl, the burrowing owl breeding program that they had, right? right. And she and she spoke of the young, I don't know, the fledglings or what they would be called, but yeah. fledglings. Okay, yeah. um, she said, "Everybody that's born," I said, "Everybody that's born, everybody." Right? I'm like immediately. It was a very anthropomorphic placement on that bird, right? And I'm not saying, of course, burrowing owls are important, and I'm glad we have this huge conservation effort to keep them around, and it's awesome. Um, but it was interesting to me to note that that emotion was immediately applied, right? That anthropomorphic value was applied to this creature as if they were another person, right? And I'm not saying that's the wrong view necessarily. It's just interesting to note that that emotion is what's driving that conservation, right? So what, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do we know that our emotions aren't driving us in the wrong direction because of grizzly bears are sexy and, you know, Mites aren't sexy. <laughs> uh, I, we don't. No, we don't. And and um, I guess I I see examples where not necessarily emotion is driving the wrong direction, mm. but we may be putting a little bit too much effort in a direction that isn't necessarily required, and we could be going someplace else with that same effort. But emotion is driving this thing along. And yeah. you know, to be honest, uh, I I think grizzly bears is a prime example. Mm. Um, the number of bears in this province has, has improved significantly. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a heck of a lot of work being done on grizzly bears, yet there's other species that are starting to wig out here, and you know because they're not as sexy, not as much money is being put into that sort of thing. So yeah, you know, so there's there's grasses and and tiny little plants that are disappearing that no one's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and if some of that time and energy and money that's being put into grizzly bear conservation went into that, perhaps we could save a different species. Yeah. Uh, so it's not wrong that all the energy gets into, a, like, say, well, caribou is another example. And there's been yeah. millions and millions being spent on conserving caribou. They're important, absolutely. But could some of that money be put someplace else to save species as well if yeah. it were not for the emotion tied to this iconic species? Yeah, for sure. So. And there's and and with caribou too, there's there's like uh, I guess with these big megafauna, especially right. There's a lot of value to uh, indigenous communities that are that you know, their whole society. Like you talk about the Northwest Territories or something, right? Yeah. If the caribou disappeared up there they would be completely screwed. For cause, sure. Because their Absolutely. whole livelihood depends on the existence of that animal, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there it becomes not emotion. It becomes literally a, an argument between life and death. Yeah, right? social economic issues, for sure. Yeah, yeah big absolutely. time. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, it, 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 I just wanted to, to suss out that idea of emotion and conservation, right? Because I think it's it can be... It can show up as being a bad thing a lot of times. People talk about the anthropomorphization of of creatures, right, as yeah. being bad, and 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 yeah, I, I could see that, but I also see that it gets a lot of people on the boat. Oh, absolutely, and and you know, to be honest, the the most successful conservation programs out there are generally ones where someone has done a really good marketing job and made it made this this animal. Like a person. Polar bears. It, polar bears are one. Or, you know, uh, seals. Seals. A seal hunt. Yeah, big time. Uh, you know, there was, from a biological standpoint, there is nothing wrong with the seal hunt that's occurring on yeah. the East Coast. But boy, from an emotional standpoint, there's lots of things that show up that are wrong. Something about clubbing a, exactly. a ball of fat land on the ice that people don't right. like. <laughs> big, those big eyes. Yeah, yeah, you can make that a very emotional issue. Mm-hmm. And and again, there's nothing wrong with the fact that emotion involved, but... From if you're looking strictly on a if you're cold calculating science side of things, have we just put a lot of time, energy, and funds into mm-hmm. something that really isn't as important as some other critical science science based conservation issues? Yeah, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Do you think we're we're managing nature for nature's sake or managing it for people's sake? Because you mentioned earlier that it was like we're you know we're we're managing human impact. We're not really managing the creatures. We're managing our impact on society. So. Would you say that we're managing nature for nature's sake or for our own? Oh, I would say definitely for our own. For our own sake. Yeah, there's no and do you think it. there's a, is there a difference between those two? Like really, if we're part of this ecosystem and ultimately if it's not sustainable, we're not. Um, is it one and the same question or is that? Well, I, I guess. It depends uh, on the, on the, on the, on the. On the time scale yeah, we're talking, the scale, right? Yeah, certainly on the scale we're talking about. And I, you know, I would think that. Um, we can likely lose a lot of our natural um, capital without it directly impacting human civilization. Yeah. Um, it will impact the sense that we've lost something that we'll never have back again. Yeah. So that's part of the concern is, well, you know, losing that species, losing a, a polar bear, it doesn't impact me personally. And I'll, I mean, I'll have a job and I can still feed my kids and still pay my mortgage. So yeah. it's it's unfortunate, but, you know, they're gone. Yeah. That sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're managing when we, when we, you know, work on species like polar bears, we're managing it, I think, for our benefit and the fact that it it makes me feel better at night knowing I sent some money to the people who are going to try and save this species. Yeah. But if it actually disappears, yeah, it's, you know, yeah. You know, it'll be unfortunate. I'll feel bad, but it doesn't impact me directly. Yeah. Um, if I think if we were managing on behalf of the species, you would see, well, 
this community or these individuals, there's what they did, what they sacrificed to ensure this species thrive. And so there are some communities that do that, absolutely, mm-hmm. uh, who make changes in how the community is growing and things like that. But it happens pretty rarely where you hear of uh, an individual or a community is giving up something so a species can continue to live. Yeah. Uh, all you have to do is look at, you know, city of Edmonton, city of Calgary. If we're really managing the landscape for biodiversity, we wouldn't continue to continu- continuously expand the size of the city. Mm-hmm. You know, we keep talking about densification. Yeah. It makes it not only cheaper from a tax point of view to have everybody much closer in, but from a loss of habitat and land, Mm -hmm. that makes so much sense. But we don't do it. We've been talking about it for decades. I like a big yard more than I like being six feet away from my neighbor. Exactly. (laughs) I live on an acreage. Yeah. Right? So I'm a conservation biologist, but living on an acreage. Now I can justify it because four and a half of my five acres is treed, and that's how I justify it. But the reality is if we were doing it for the species, yeah. that house wouldn't be in there in the first place. It would just be solid bush. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah. so ultimately we have to be doing this for ourselves, but for ourselves in the long, long well, timeline, right? But like also, but it just, yeah. Yeah, I would think, I, I don't know that I consider most people doing it for themselves. Most people hopefully are doing it for the future. Yes. For my, you, you know, I'm doing it for my grandchildren and their mm. grandchildren, that sort of thing. Good point. Um, because most most conservation efforts you undertake, you're not going to see the results tomorrow. Yeah. But the hope is that, okay, if we do this now, mm-hmm. this, well, for instance, at ACA, we, we purchase a lot of habitat, set it aside as private habitat land. Mm-hmm. My hope is that will be there 100 years from now. Yeah. So that if other developments occur, if our cities expand a little bit, there will still be these pockets of conserved land that was there that I was involved in conserving in the first place, and they're still there for people to see. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah that, that, that generational impact like for the future right sustainability i guess is the is the word there yeah i guess not robbing from your children or grandchildren yeah. is yeah uh, you know that's sort of more how i look at it is, uh, <laughs> you know we had all these resources in front of us if we you know if they're not there later mm-hmm. you know i'm dead by then so what are they going to do to me but yeah you know, you <laughs> yeah. hopefully you feel a little bit of guilt now that you want to ensure that 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 your great grandchildren have the same opportunities to see a polar bear or a grizzly bear or whatever or a mite yeah uh you know, those kinds of things, but it, <sighs> it, it, um, I would say it's, it's very, a very personal values driven thing, determining what is conservation. To you. I mean, a lot, for a lot of people making sure they do recycling every day is their conservation. That's how they feel they're helping the environment mm-hmm. and they might not specifically be able to point as to what species they save or what habitat is still there, but they're reducing the impact on the environment. And that's mm-hmm. the extent of their conservation efforts. People are trying to do something to further sustainability and conservation. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. No, I can get on board with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic to try to balance when you're talking about you know what I mean our own values of wanting big yards and, and expanding Absolutely. our communities and the populations expanding and but maintaining that conservation value for other species and natural species and that kind of stuff right like it's trying yeah I don't know how you balance that it's about I yeah. I don't know, just get more people involved, get more people talking about it and try and suss it out, I guess. Yeah, and the, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You've just seen over the last decade changes in attitudes. Well, climate change itself, right? Yeah. That's that's a topic that wasn't talked about 10 years ago. Now it is top of mind for everybody. Now, I would I would guess the majority of people that know the words don't really know a lot about the, the science behind it, what the real impacts might be, but they do know that it sounds like something bad could happen. Yeah. So I should take some steps to try and trying to reduce that impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people are willing to go to a certain level, but yeah. uh, I don't know about you, but I don't drive an electric car. No. 
Yeah. So it's one of those things where we want to go. Right. right. And we don't really have the, and that's part of the problem, right? Is our society doesn't value electric cars enough to have that infrastructure in place yet. Right. I imagine in 15, 20 years, we'll probably have, you know, the, you know, the, the charging ports and the, whatever we need to make electric cars happen right here. But like right now we're not valued at valuing it that much right and yeah. we have other problems with electric cars like temperature and oh yeah i mean there's all <laughs> kinds of technical issues but i don't even think it's an electric car issue it's a matter of that we don't we don't value the negative impact that is coming yet because we don't sure. see it yet yeah oh exactly right so when you know the uh ocean levels start to rise and start to swallow vancouver well Vancouverites will get a lot more on board mm-hmm. at that point in time. When Alberta is in its fifth year of a drought where none of us has seen water, this summer is not a good good year to be <laughs> complaining about that. But you know, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, it'll yeah. be oh, this is really directly now impacting me. So when it directly impacts you, then you bet you're going to go buy that electric car mm-hmm. to try and reduce that impact. But is it too late at that point? And that's yeah, well, that's the problem, right? Like, I think people have been preaching about climate change for a long time. Like, I remember, I, th- I think it was in the in, in the late 70s, it was Carl Sagan was talking about climate change and, and some of the impacts we might expect. And a lot of the naysayers will look back and go, oh, well, they said in 1990 that everything was going to be scorched. And then, oh, and they said again in 2000 it was going to be scorched. And it keeps, they keep saying, well, these idiots don't know what they're talking about, right? But wh- I wonder why we fail to recognize the impacts of, of that we're having, right? Like it's just, we, we're, we're blissfully ignorant of the fact that we have an impact on the natural world, right? We seem to just, until we see the evidence of it, like personally with our eyes, yeah. right? Yeah. Don't hear about it online or from a professional or whatever. It, we don't, we don't make those changes, right? So, and, and there's always going to be people that don't, that, you know what I mean? That don't make those changes. That's just the way humans work. But, um, I don't know. It seems like we're moving in the right direction on that state anyways. Like people are, it's becoming, with the internet, it's becoming more and more Absolutely. mainstream yeah. and we're, we're heading in that direction, right? But yeah, I guess tying that emotion into it again, it all it all adds up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. The emotion is playing a huge role in, in it for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a result, you get wild and crazy claims that, uh, you know, the people point out, well, see, that guy was wrong. He claimed this. And well, that, the, guy's, the guy who was making the claim didn't have any background in making the claim in the first place. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. right, he has the same, when it comes to the internet, the guy who uh, works at 7-Eleven has the same level of authority as the guy who has been a climate researcher for 50 years. <laughs> yeah. It really yeah. doesn't matter, right? It's still, it's whoever can get the most votes on Facebook yeah. wins the argument. Yeah. And so that's part of our issue. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, again, the conservation side of it has so many different levels. As to you know, that climate change is a obviously a global conservation issue mm-hmm. that we all have to worry about. That mm-hmm. if we don't make some changes, we might end up with a huge conservation on everything. Mm-hmm. Down to you know, are you going to use less herbicide on your lawn this uh, this month mm-hmm. to reduce the impacts on the water quality and conserve fish habitat? Right, right? very simple things. That so kind of stuff, yeah, every, yeah. Um, and and it uh, like I say, it's it seems to be a very personal uh, decision. And one person is not going to necessarily agree with the next that that's conservation. No, no, of course. And everyone's definition of conservation is completely different, right? Yeah. So like one one group might say it's like complete and total eradication of humans on, on a certain landscape to protect species at yep. all costs. And someone else might say, well, we can, we can work with this and interact with it because there's other values at stake besides just biodiversity or whatever, yeah. right? So um, why... Uh, 
one of the big things that we always talk about is biodiversity and we discussed it a little bit earlier before we started recording was the, that biodiversity aspect right um what is the like the role of biodiversity why is it important and why is it one of those things that it's it, it's just one of those bells that we keep ringing, right? Like biodiversity, biodiversity, biodiversity. Is it, is that the thing we need to be paying attention to? Or are there other things that, that need to be included in that equation? Well, I guess I've got to fall back on the training that myself and every other biologist gets coming out of school is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the most important thing. Now, why? Well, it's because we're taught it's the most important thing. Right. Um, so that's, that's a value that I have and I, I believe in, but I don't necessarily think that that value is any better than anybody else's. Um, from my viewpoint, biodiversity is important for a couple of different reasons. The, the one is just simply the intrinsic value that can be lost. Okay. There's species that we might lose that we didn't even know existed. So loss of a species, in my mind, is just intrinsically a sad thing. You've yeah. lost value there. Yeah. Um, you don't know what that species was or could have been or anything like that. From an ecological standpoint, the more biodiversity you have in an ecosystem, the more resilient that ecosystem can be. Mm-hmm. So when you have an impact, human-caused impact, there's more of a chance of some of those species being able to respond mm-hmm. and, and deal with and recover from that impact. Right. If you get to a landscape where you have very low biodiversity, you know, five or six species, well, a single impact might wipe out all five species. Now you have nothing on the landscape. Gotcha. So from that perspective... More biodiversity uh, just makes the, the ecosystem itself more diverse and more resilient to, to impact. So yeah. if you want to be very pragmatic about it, that's that's the best way of ensuring we do have a functioning ecosystem in the future is to make sure there's a lot of biodiversity. I guess that's a good way to, to just define conservation in general, right, is ecological resilience, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a good way to put it, just as simple as that, right? Conservation is, you know, the working towards ultimately ecological resilience, just like, you know, the most resilient that ecology is possible. And yeah, I like that. That makes sense. Totally. Because yeah. yeah, and so so do you think biodiversity is, so you'd say that's probably the best way to measure ecological resilience or the easiest way, I should say, I guess? Oh, it's not the easiest way by any no? stretch. No, oh, okay. <laughs> no, measuring, measuring biodiversity is a difficult task. Okay. There's no doubt about it because it all, again, comes down to the scale of what you're looking at. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, right. you, all right. You want to go back to the mites. You want to just say, well, there's a bunch of mites, or you want to figure out what, how many of each species of the mite are the there. Population dynamics it, is of each exactly, species and how right? it relates to one another. So measuring <laughs> measuring biodiversity is really, yeah, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, and most of the time, when we talk about uh, some type of measure of biodiversity, it's a very coarse scale. Okay. Um, you know, you'll certainly deal with your your large mammals. You can easily see in your birds. Uh, you know, maybe it's fish in the, the lake, that sort of thing. But when it gets down to the, the smaller and smaller the, the creature is, the harder and harder it is to measure. Mm. And then, like you say, the the ecological functioning between those species becomes important as well. You can have lots of biodiversity simply by counting the numbers of each species. But what if you had, let's say, in an ecosystem that was a little off kilter, you had more bears than you had elk. Uh, more grizzly bears than, than their prey. That's bad thing. Even uh, though if you counted biodiversity, well, the numbers show they're actually doing really well. But that's a messed up uh, ecosystem there, right? right? You need to have more prey than predators. Gotcha. So that all that sort of stuff sort of works into trying to figure out a true measure of a healthy ecosystem biodiversity. So biodiversity is a good place to start then. It's and, a it's a yeah. good concept and theory to start with. And where do you go from there and how do you measure it is really the issue. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, in the reality on the landscape, um, and we 
uh, at Alberta Conservation Association will generally just go to a habitat and say, okay, well, is this a diverse habitat at a large scale? So do we have a wide range of, of tree species uh, of different age classes? Uh, do we have a healthy shrub system underneath? Do we have the forbs? All that sort of thing. Okay, well, if we have a fairly diverse uh, system or habitat there, chances are, we cross our fingers, we have a fairly biodiverse ecosystem. Right. Um, the cost of going in and trying to measure it all to, to prove that is something we've decided we're not. That money could be spent on trying to conserve more habitat down the road. Totally. So it's and that's in a lot of cases that's that's how it functions. So is that justified in saying like focusing on the big things, on the sexy things, on the things that are easy to measure? Um, is that like it, it's going to be easier than trying to measure the mites or the whatever the mycorrhizae or the hippum whatever? Yeah. Right. It's going to be easier than, than trying to measure the small things. Um, does that follow through though? Like, so if you're, if you're paying attention to all the megafauna on the landscape and their population dynamics and how it all works, if you maintain that, is that going to be a good indicator that the rest of the ecosystem is in check, right? Like, obviously I know there's going to be, yep. there's more inputs than that, but uh, basically what I'm, what I'm just trying to say is that, um, is this the right way forward or do we need to get more specific or is it like you said, and it's, it's, we need to, just try and spread out more and, and spread that money to, to more different species. Yeah. Well, I think, I think using indicator species is certainly the way to go. It's the way most, most uh, groups will operate because of that, because of the cost involved in trying to do anything. Else. And mm -hmm. occasionally, certainly there'll be, uh, you know, researchers that are working on individual species and find that, well, this, this species is falling through the cracks. It, you know, oh, just okay. because your indicator species doing well doesn't mean this species is. And then we have to, you know, adjust what we're looking at and how we're dealing with that particular species. Right. But um, I, I would say in general, if you get uh, some good indicator species, which is generally what we do, yeah. that's what you use. Is, hey, if these guys are doing fine, then everybody else below them is likely doing fine as well. And we've and, and we've backed that up, right? Like that's oh, something that absolutely. we know is is a functional way to look at conservation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And it... It, it's not only functional, but it's a logistical reality. Of course. Just, yep, for the, sure. The, money is a, is an issue, Absolutely. Right? And you need to work with the money. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so uh, talking about money, actually, um, do you think, like, I know places like the States, right? They have, they're, 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 have a lot, I think they have a lot more resources going towards conservation because it sounds like they have a lot more taxes, Right on, for example, uh, like well, all the hunting tags, right in in, in Alberta, right. A lot, a lot of that money goes toward straight toward to you guys, right, for doing conservation work. Right. And uh, whereas like down in the states, those those hunting tags are quite a bit more expensive, right. And also down in the states, I think they have uh, a bunch of different taxes on outdoor gear, right, hunting yes. gear and fishing gear specifically, and that goes directly back into conservation and that kind of stuff, right. Um, do you think that Canada needs to implement something like that to try? Because I. I I feel like I go fishing with, with somebody, right? And that person will talk about how this fishery has been mismanaged for years and years and years and years. And they need to figure their shit out because this is this is a real resource. We need to protect it. We need to make sure it's here. And uh, fish populations are on the decline. And like, how do we how do we manage this properly, right? Um, and my thought, my first thought, whenever I hear stuff like that, is always like, but they don't have any money. You got like one biologist working like a group full of lakes and he's allowed to do to check out the population numbers and do work on it once every 10 years or something like that. So it is, is the, is one of the problems in Alberta or Canada, if you can speak to it, is it that there isn't enough money to do proper management or are there different 
different hurdles that we're, we're, we're having trouble getting over? Uh, well, I think, I think funds is always an issue. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is in Alberta, the vast majority of conservation work is, is being undertaken as a result of hunting and fishing dollars. There's no doubt about it mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, if there's a way of bringing more funds in now, certainly we receive uh, grants from the federal government to to help um, buy a habitat to work with endangered species. So mm-hmm. there's there's other grants out there, and we get corporate sponsorships as well. So that's great to have. But um, you know, the general public, um, I guess I would argue, the vast majority of people, the general public, don't put any money into conservation directly mm-hmm. into conservation. Uh, so is there a way for them to be able to do that? Uh, and is there, a, a, whether it be through uh, just simply donations to particular groups, which, you know, there's there's groups like ourselves or Nature Conservative, Ducks Unlimited, all those groups that could be receive funds. Or, yeah, is a tax, like I think it's called a Pittman-Robinson tax. Yeah, Pittman-Robinson yeah. tax is the one. So, yeah. yeah, would that work to, yeah, put it on uh, outdoor gear in general? Because if you're going for a hike out in these areas, you know, you're having an impact and presumably you want that area to be there. Yeah. Uh, you might not be a consumptive user like a hunter or an angler, but mm. you still want it to be there. So would would yeah. you know extra ten bucks on your next pair of hiking boots mm-hmm. be something people are willing to pay? Yeah, well, even a one percent tax on, and I don't think it should just be hunting and fishing stuff like you said, right? Oh, yeah. Because it's all outdoor gear. I mean, I, you could definitely argue that down south in like Calgary area, right, in in, in Canmore and and the Pluses down there in Banff and that kind of stuff, that the impact of campers and hikers and skiers is significantly bigger than the impact of all of the fishing and hunting put together, right? For sure. So yeah. I think like, a, a yeah, so all, all the hiking boots and all your hiking pants and your fishing poles and your whatever has a 1% tax. Like, could you imagine the influx of money that we would see as conservation? And like, that would be, I don't know, in my mind, that seems like a, an inter, like a, like a really easy solution. And I'm wondering why we haven't seen something like that here, right? Because we do have some pretty unique natural resources, right? That, and if we don't take care of them, they might, you know what I mean? They could, they could disappear, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And if, if money is the limiting factor, I wonder, um, I don't know, have you guys ever looked into anything like that? Like trying to, to convince the government to do something along those lines? Yeah, so the idea of some type of tax on outdoor gear has has come up over the last 10 years for sure from various groups, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, um, any traction? Um, well, Various levels, but clearly it's never actually been implemented. I mean, right. We're, a, I mean, we're in Alberta, an anti-tax <laughs> jurisdiction. Yeah, so straight up, it's yeah. yeah, it's it's not something that most uh, provincial government is going to propose a tax. Sneak now. it in, just sneak well, it in there. <laughs> yeah, the, the, really, the question comes down to you know maybe if it's a tax where they're specifically saying all the money is going to go to this, yep. particularly this type of conservation work. Mm-hmm. Then you know a lot of people might be quite willing to say, okay, I'm I'm all right with paying that kind of tax, not a problem. Well, especially because it's not on it's not on groceries, it's not on gasoline, yep. it's not on things you need to survive, right? We're talking yep. about these are luxuries, yep. right? These are things that you're, and we need to start paying for our impact on the natural world, right? And that I think a tax, in my mind, makes perfect sense, right? Like we're mm-hmm. we're not including there's a cost, right? The same as the same as as as, as uh, Fossil fuels, right? Fossil fuels has an impact on our society in a really massive way through climate change, but even even more measurably through the public health system, right? Through our health system. Right. We have such a strain on the health system from directly from the use of fossil fuels for a number of reasons, right? And that can, this is can be shown and proven. 
but we have no way to pay for that because we're not paying for it at the pumps. That's right. right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the point of a carbon tax and take it or leave it, love it or hate it, whatever. But there's, there's a cost to society of using fossil fuels and that cost is not being accounted for. Right. So that's why we have such a hard time balancing the budget and all this kind of stuff. That's one of the reasons I think the same argument could be put towards ecological resilience and, and, and nature, right. And trying to make sure that it's there. We have an impact of us, of too many people being on the landscape and we have a role and we need to try to main, try to get back to quote unquote, you know, a, a natural landscape in order to do that, we need money. And so there's a cost on our resources of us being out there, but we don't want to pay for it. It's weird. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Now, the my understanding is this new UPC government is looking at putting a, I think it's a $30 registration fee on, um, on uh, ATV squads, those kinds of off-road vehicles. Makes sense to me. And that, that money, as I understand it, is supposed to go towards a fund that will help work on trail systems and crossings. Yeah. And, I haven't heard anybody in that community saying we're against that idea. Because uh, so. it doesn't affect you. It's like it's $30 for like, – well, it's going to be so like a, a big influx of money, and it, it doesn't affect your use. You're not going to stop using your quad because you have to pay $30 to no, register it. Exactly, right? and most of them are quite excited about the fact, okay, that'd be great if we had a trail system and we, yeah. if we had – made sure that all the crossings were appropriate so we're not causing them. So most of the, the people I've talked to are very, um, you know, they, they want to be responsible users. And if, in fact, these funds can be put to get towards mm. something like that, they'd be all for it. So, And yeah, to be I fair, think, the people that you talk to are going to be pro-conservation because well, that's your circle. Absolutely. That's, yeah, <laughs> certainly I have a biased a group for sure. <laughs> no doubt about it. Uh, but, you know, I, I do know that that even five, six years ago, there were several ATV groups coming to the government saying, you know, we'd like to have some type of funds mm-hmm. um, on registration so we can work on uh, stream crossings, having bridges for, for quads to go across instead yeah. of driving through streams. So it's, it's little things, but it, it will reduce uh, significant impacts to, to yeah. some of those streams I'm, for sure. I'm definitely not against taxes. Like taxes yeah. make sense. I mean, people just complain because it, it's going to bureaucracy, it's going to administration, yeah. it's going to this. And some of that's true. But that's a necessity of the society we live in, and the, ultimately we need to we need to pay for our impact on the world, right? And we're not right now, so we, yeah. we need to start incorporating this, or we could be in trouble. So yeah. that's my own personal, extremely biased opinion of it. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I'm sure there's an opposing viewpoint that oh, might make sense. But I'm against taxes, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm okay if I know what they're going for for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of yeah, if I paid extra when I bought my next pair of boots and I knew that money was going to something specific around conservation, I wouldn't have a problem with. If it was just right. going to the general revenue, well, then it'd just be well, of course. You know, if it's going going to general revenue, yeah. nobody wants to pay it, yeah. that, and I I'm on board with that. But like I'm saying, that's the point of a tax, right? Yeah, it's supposed to increase the amount of funding going towards something without reducing the amount of use and actually putting that money towards positively impacting that resource, right? So it's, I mean, if, if it's doing that the way it's supposed to be, then I think, yeah, why are we not all for it, right? But yeah. it's interesting that, we, yeah, we just, well, no, I don't like the fact that I'm, you know, it's going to cost me an extra couple of pennies a year. I don't, that's, I don't like that. No, no more, no more yeah. of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I hope, yeah. I hope we see something along that lines because I, I, I feel like that's one of the big hurdles is just the lack of money towards, managing some of these things right it's certainly there's no doubt money is one issue but you know the other issue is is getting everybody on board as to what the appropriate conservation activities are and Mm. i guess who is willing to take the impact because usually if you're going to make well let's let's look at the the park that they were proposing ndp was proposing the bighorn sure right so that's they were going to do it for conservation reasons Mm. but some people 
were going to be directly impacted by that. Of course. Uh, so the, Quite a few people, so, yeah. Yeah, so there was potentially a conservation positive to come out of it, but there was going to be a negative impact on others. So mm-hmm. who who should be required to to take the negative side of those things? The, the negative and how do you impact? weigh that, right? How do you exactly. weigh the, the impact on future so, generations versus the loss of current you know, uh, economic downfall or current, current, current difficulties for people, right? How do you, how do you weigh that out and, and decide that ultimately? Cause I mean, this is a weird, weird example, but you look at, uh, like Teddy Roosevelt, right? Like he was looked at now he's looked at as being a genius and, 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 you know, he's, he's, he created all these conservation areas in the United States and, and everyone loves him for being that conservation guy. Right. But now, but if you look back in the, in the history and you realize that he was, very widely unliked, right? By a lot of different people for doing that, right? Yeah. But now we we applaud him, right? So that it's interesting to try to balance that. Do we create a park or do we not create a park? Like, right? Like where where is that balance of impacts on current people living on the landscape and impacts on future generations down the line, right? Yeah, so absolutely. I don't know where it is. I yeah. have no idea if the bighorn was a good idea or not. I it's there's so many there's so many things to talk about there, but yeah. Yeah, so that so you know, funding is one thing, but coming to agreement as to what can or should be done and who's willing to actually pay the cost, because yeah. I certainly can get on board with the guy who doesn't want to park if it means I don't have a job anymore mm-hmm. to feed my family. For, like, for like, sure, like that's the last thing anybody who thinks about when they can't feed themselves is conserving something, right? No, yeah, yeah. but you know, there are certainly if I look just directly at types of programs that we run, funding is is our biggest issue. We don't, we're not talking about doing parks or we do a lot of work with with private landowners where mm-hmm. we're working with them uh, trying to uh, reed seed uh, pasture to native uh, grasslands trying to fence off uh, riparian areas to protect them those kinds of ideas so if we had more funds we could do more of that kind of smaller scale conservation work on a year-to-year basis for sure but no it adds up it. over time absolutely yeah yeah, yeah, yeah sure. no doubt about it we we purchased a, a piece of land along the North Raven River last year, one of the, the premier uh, brown trout fishing streams in the province. Um, and I just got a phone call the other day. There's another piece of land available. You know, are we interested? Well, yeah, we're interested, but we don't have the money to purchase it. Yeah. Right? So if, if <laughs> we get a discount, <laughs> yeah, you know, if somebody's got five hundred thousand dollars laying around, wants to give me a call, we can go and and protect another quarter section of land along that that stream. Yeah. Um, so there certainly are. Um, I, w- I guess I would say easy, smaller scale conservation activities that can occur if the mo- money was there with very, very little uh, issues around who's being impacted negatively on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. There was uh, thinking about this idea of I'm having a lot of, like a conversation, the last conversation I had with David Anderson about he's from the Healthy Landscapes program I was telling you about from yes. FRI Research. Right. And uh, we were discussing the fact that you know, our, our landscape is not a static landscape, right? Like as far as forest dynamic and, and population dynamics. And, and it's not, it's not a, it's not a snapshot in time. It's not like we need, we need 3000 grizzly bears at all times. We need 30,000 elk at all times. We need whatever, right? There's no, there's no fixed number. There's a range, right? And those things are constantly changing and they're, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a cyclical thing. And also, you know, species come and go and that kind of stuff, right? So how, what does the role of, because I feel like a lot of conservation, it's just like, oh, we need to bring the species back, period, because we need them back, right? Right. Um, the justification behind that is like, is that they've, they've always been here, right? So we need to bring them back. Um, but looking at, this, at, the, at the, 
natural world as dynamic how to how do we like, how do we bring that into the conservation conversation you know what i mean yeah yeah and i think uh, when you're talking about sort of dynamic conservation i think you're you're much more talking about habitats than you are individual species true yes um, yeah yeah and so having a range of habitats and in some cases understanding well you know maybe uh 50 years from now what we've just conserved won't be important anymore and we'll need to shift it over because if you take a look at climate change for instance there's been a lot of work lately on climate change looking at the areas that we've protected now will they provide the appropriate habitat 50 years from now if the climate models are mm-hmm. true mm-hmm. um you know we we've got a bunch of landscape here in the parklands that we've set aside for parkland species well if it dries out and it becomes grassland clearly the parkland species don't have habitat so do we need to be looking further north protect habitat now so that as things shift it's available for those species that's a real tough one the climate change one is crazy because everywhere you go everyone i talk to says that you know these our ecological sub-regions are moving yeah right and we're having not, we're not, it's not like we're having tree species die out that make up, you know, that landscape, but we're having, there's no, there's no new ones popping up, right? That's right. So that, so when the, the current generation of trees or grasses or whatever dies, there might not be any progeny to take its place and you'll have a, a shift over of ecological, whatever, a different, a different type of ecology take over, right? Yeah. So yeah, that, that conversation is a whole nother level yeah. of what the hell. But even, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, but even if you look at sort of a, a smaller time scale, um, you know, boreal forest burn. So, if you're looking at conserving boreal forest, um, you, you want old growth boreal forest. Well, this year it burned. Well, you don't have old growth boreal forest anymore. If that was the only chunk of forest you had mm-hmm. for a species that required old growth boreal forest, well, your species is gone. Mm-hmm. And so, you have to have a variety of, uh, of areas. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, that happens all the time is you'll see. Um, Let's say you'll stick a radio transmitter on, on deer to get an idea. What habitats are they using? You'll find that, well, they use, you know, this fieldy area 50% of the time and, and this uh, aspeny area um, 30% of the time and then something else 17% and just 3% of the time they're using this chunk of really dense conifer trees. So it appears that that habitat is not really all that important to them. So you move forward to the conservation efforts. You don't worry about the dense conifer uh, that has really dense uh uh, cover over top then the one year comes when you had get four feet of snow and it turns out that three percent of habitat is the only habitat that they can actually go to where they can walk around and find food every other habitat is buried in snow and they're all dead mm-hmm. so well the habitat on average is not used much that yeah. one critical time yeah is what size uh, was what they survive on it's that one and that's something that isn't when we look at averages, it's great, but a, an individual doesn't live on averages. Yeah. If, yeah, if, yeah. if a one one event happens, you're done as an individual. Yeah. And that's so, so that's another reason for, for it. That's where you see the, the dynamics occurring, the, the need to take into account a lot of variation in landscapes. Yeah. Um, and the fact that what is important in the landscape will vary with time mm-hmm. um, and whether or not t- that time scale is a season or you know, in the climate change time scale, whatever, yeah, oh, it, yeah. it varies at different scales. Yeah. And so, it, yeah, it's constantly changing. And and you're right in that most people think of nature as static. Yeah. Like we have 
50 bears in a landscape and that's how many bears you should have. And mm -hmm. that's, that's just not a reality. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. All species will go up and down depending on a wide range of, of variables. Mm -hmm. the, the issue is in a lot of cases we have that variation, but the variation is on a downward trajectory. Mm -hmm. So where it used to bounce between 30 and 50. Now it bounces between 20 and 40. And then years later, it's now bouncing between 10 and 30 and your lows get lower and your highs get lower and mm -hmm. you're heading down, down, yeah. down. And yeah. that's really where the issue is. Right. And we can, and we can point to that. We know that now that's happening with all, most species. Like it's, we're seeing this downward trend from our own personal or, you know, society's impact on the natural right. world. Yeah. Loss of habitat and whatever. So, uh, in that same kind of mind frame, what's our obligation to species? Um, like take, uh, I don't know, take caribou, for example, which is a super charismatic species that yep. everyone's really worried about. Right. And, yep. and, and fair enough. Um, what is our obligation to a species that turns out to not be sustainable in the current paradigm that we're living in? Right. So you have a species like caribou who, Without people, they were fine, or without, I should say, Western culture, they were fine, right? They, they're, they're sustainable with indigenous culture, and they're sustainable for, for hundreds and hundreds or thousands of years, right? And then we showed up, and we kind of broke up the landscape and made it difficult for them and, you know, just, just, just create, made their situation much more complicated. What is our obligation to, should we be constantly funneling money towards that species because it's our fault that it's going down, Right regardless of the fact of whether or not we can get it back to a sustainable level and it can be self-sustaining again, should we constantly be putting money into that to, to, to keep it on the landscape because it's our bad? Or is there a place where it's like, this is, this is taking up resources that another species that's not a lost cause might be able to take. And I don't, I, I'm not saying that this is what we should do, but it's, it's a conversation people don't like to have, right? And, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So thanks for me in the middle yeah, of it. <laughs> but people, but people, but people think about it, right? So, Absolutely. Um, and maybe I shouldn't use caribou because it, it, no, it gets a great one. Going, right. It's, but it's, it's, yeah. So my personal opinion, <laughs> I have nothing to do with the organization I work with. So my personal opinion is, yeah, do we have to put money into ensuring that species stays? Absolutely. I think we do. Do we have to ensure that every one of those caribou landscapes stays? No. Hmm. Uh, I think I think we do have to do um, a triage. Well, what are we going to save? There's a number of different herds out there. And unless, as you say, unless we change what we're doing, the paradigm we have right now, mm -hmm. those, that, those herds will not survive. It does not matter what we do. Mm -hmm. We're not going to make them survive. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now we're going to extreme lengths of, of shooting wolves Mm -hmm. and and moose in areas to try and reduce the predation on these caribou and we're spending a ton of money yeah and is it okay that we're wiping out wolves in that area some people would argue no yeah now the caribou is endangered the wolves are not so that's we've decided that that's an okay thing to do it's the trade-off we're willing to make yeah um but identifying i think identifying the herds that are most likely to survive yeah. is probably where we have to go. And to be honest, I think we have to take a step back for a minute and look at what we've done in these situations in the past. Um, Elk Island National Park, which most people don't really think about why that park is there. That park is, was designed for exactly the same issue we're having caribou, mm. the loss of elk on this parkland habitat. Mm -hmm. We moved in here. We make a lot of changes to the landscape. 
elk numbers are declining and some people raised the alarm that we're losing the habitat and the species. Mm -hmm. So they made a park. They fenced them in. They stuck elk in there. Now, eventually, bison ended up being there as well. But bison were over in Wainwright for the longest while. But that park has now been the location for which has been used to reestablish elk and bison across North America. Right. So at the time, it was horrendous. So we got to the point that we actually had to fence these things in to protect them. We're in the same state with caribou as far as I'm concerned right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unfortunate where we are, mm-hmm. but the reality is we are not going to stop developing that landscape. It's not going to happen. We need it for economic development. So maybe we have to take that extraordinary measure of making a caribou island park yeah, and just come to grips with the fact for the next hundred years, we not aren't necessarily going to have caribou running across that landscape all over the place. But mm-hmm. once we've done finished with whatever we're doing even even if we say once we've at least got that habitat reestablished reclaimed which we're starting to do now Mm -hmm. then we can start putting the caribou back on landscape again Mm -hmm. because we know we have we haven't lost them we've altered you know where they're going to be for a while but at least my great grandchildren would see them on the landscape again versus the current process where a lot of money is being put in Mm -hmm. and arguably for just sort of slowing the rate at which the loss is occurring. It's still inevitable on some of these herds. We're just reducing the time or increasing the time it's going to take for it to happen. And that's so. kind of the argument, right? Is like, is this is this a lost cause? Is, is there no amount of help that we can give this, that herd or whatever to, to help it totally come back? And I mean, ultimately, we can we can tie all this back to us, right? Like Absolutely. We, we screwed up the landscape for, for their purposes, right? And it's our bad. It's completely our bad. So we have, I think we have a, a definite responsibility to make sure that that species is around, yeah. right? Because it, again, it has a niche, it has a role in, in the landscape and it needs to be there for ecological resilience and everything, right? Um, but yeah, I, I was just, I was just curious what you thought about that. Cause it's a, it's an interesting one. I think it's easy to say we need to protect this X species because it's our fault. But at what point have we, you know, affected the landscape to such a point that it's it's not no longer suitable habitat and can cannot get back to that, right? So not to say that if we stop, sure, if we stopped economic development, we stopped, you know, pipelines and everything else today and started reclaiming some of these sites and and shooting all the wolves and, and getting rid of the white-tailed deer and, and pushing it back to normal. Then yeah, maybe you might you might bring caribou back. But I it, the reality is we don't have a societal consensus to say that that's what we want to do. That's right. right. Yeah. So it's it's tough when you got to deal with the reality of it. It's 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 nice. It's a romantic gesture to be like we need to protect them at all costs, no matter what. And it's like, well, how many millions or how many billions of dollars do you put into this? That could be put towards any other number of endangered species, right? That maybe should be. And yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just I'm just posing the question, just kind of wondering oh, what yeah. what do we do with this, right? I'm sure there's there's so many people working on this problem alone that are way smarter than I am that are trying to figure out this the, this answer, right? And it's I'm curious to see what they end up with for sure. Yeah, and and it's and and everybody's working on struggles with exactly the same question. Yeah, you know how much more should we put in? How much more can we put in? And will it will it result in what we want? Will we actually save these caribou? And and there's no doubt. I think the steps we take will save caribou. Mm-hmm. I just don't think they'll necessarily save all the herds. Right. Uh, I think there's money that that probably should be moved out of some of these herds mm-hmm. um, and concentrate more on the ones we think have the highest probability of surviving mm-hmm. uh, under the current process. And 
you know, there's lots of work being done uh, within government and industry to uh yeah reclaim sites and yeah. and um, oh it's constant work we do work yeah. here at GreenLink to try exactly. for this kind of stuff exactly. and it's, everyone's doing work to try and help the caribou get back on the landscape right it's just it's like there's millions and millions hundreds of millions of dollars going towards this right and i think i think that's we should i think we should put that money towards it because i mean we created the problem we have the economic prosperity to put that money into that so we have a responsibility to do that right we're all we're all eating we're all like we're good right our alberta's economy is, is good relative to the rest of the world absolutely right so it's yeah i think we have a, a responsibility to do that for sure absolutely it's uh, it's interesting but so changing gears a little bit what is the obligation around say a species like white-tailed deer right where with climate change and with the with the increased expansion of human beings into the landscape we have white-tailed deer taking getting into areas where they've traditionally never ever been right um i'm not sure what the numbers are you probably know a little bit better than i do kind of where what the range historic range of white-tailed deer was when it was in alberta and where it is now but i know it's it's significant like they've you know what i mean what is and especially considering white-tailed deer is a highly valued resource right. for a lot of albertans right yeah um there's a lot of hunters out there. There's all kinds of stuff, right? That people people want them on the landscape. They like seeing them. Um, what's our obligation to, towards conservation for that species? Because that's not a species that's going to go anywhere anytime soon. I mean, CWD is a thing, so that maybe that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But what is our obligation to say the mule deer, right? Because I know white-tailed deer white-tailed deer move in mule deer tend to move out whether or not that's because white-tailed deer moved in or there's another corresponding part of you know the white-tailed deer moving in that is the real reason for mule deer moving out um what is our responsibility to a species like that do we do we support because there's a big economic boom behind white-tailed deer at the cost of mule deer and i'm not sure i'm sure there's a bunch of other species that that pay the price for that right but Moose, yeah. moose, arguably, right? Reindeer, or sorry, reindeer, caribou. Okay. Caribou play the price for that, right? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I I haven't seen any evidence that, that moose are suffering. Uh, the odd thing is, moose numbers seem to be increasing in the southern part, well, in the, the parkland and prairie areas oh, of the province. That's good, and declining in the boreal. Yeah, um, so it's interesting. I, I would say, really, the 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 only species I've really seen that has had a na- or likely is suffering negatively from white-tailed deer has been caribou and it's because of white-tailed deer and moose being a food source for the wolves. Okay. Without the without the white-tailed deer and the moose, you wouldn't have the same wolf numbers uh, around where caribou are. And so okay. but but uh, you know from a conservation point of view, yeah, we certainly aren't concerned about um, white-tail or or moose or or uh, mule deer being around in the future. Uh, it's much more of a management sort of thing. Is sure. ensuring numbers are managed. Usually what we hear is we got too many deer I'm running. People are running well, into them on the highway, or they're eating my crops. And so, how do how does the government go about managing? Um, I guess the social carrying capacity of a species like a white-tailed deer. Well, that's my point. Is yeah. not that white-tailed deer are having a hard time. I'm saying they're doing so yeah. well yeah. that they're pushing other species off the landscape. And yeah. um, maybe this is just my own my own uh, perspective. But I, I I I was under the impression that like that mule deer populations have have been are down drastically. Like their their historic range has been decreased to a point, and it, and it corresponds pretty tightly with white-tailed deer expanding their range. Is that 
don't know that? Uh, not that no? I'm aware okay. of in Alberta. No, okay. No. Uh, I mean, certainly I've heard people saying, oh, well, you know. It might have been be... something anecdotal I just like yeah. thought of one day. <laughs> I, well, and there's certainly I've heard people say, well, there used to be mule deer in this valley. Now the whitetail have moved. I have certainly heard that, but I don't think it's a, a range-wide oh, okay. phenomena. Okay. Um, I, in some cases, for sure. The bigger issue is as you raise the chronic wasting disease. I think that's mm. much more of a concern long-term. Um, at this point, though, it's, I mean, the management of, of whitetail is... Uh, well, it's something the government is dealing with on a you know year-over-year basis. It's a species that can rebound from low numbers very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, they can breed like rabbits. You know, yeah. if, if they get a good year, they'll have twins, and in no time at all, your population will you know shoot right up if they have For a couple sure. easy winters. Yeah. Uh, but the same token, a couple of bad winters will drive them really low again. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, and. Yeah, it is a huge economic driver from a conservation point of view, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Just about you get a lot every, of money from it, yeah. Yeah, every big game hunter in the province buys a white-tailed deer tag, no mm-hmm. doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it makes a, a lot of difference uh, for mm-hmm. them being on landscape. Um, but when you look at sort of what's really sought after, uh, moose and elk are probably the ones that people are, are covet the most. For sure. sure. Yeah. Well, they're big, beautiful, cool-looking yeah. yeah. beasts. Put a lot of sure. meat in the freezer. Yeah. So, no, yeah. definitely. Taste delivers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, CWD is an issue that we've had some conversations with uh, recently with the government around, you know, what what can we do here? What's the plan going forward? Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. It continues to expand in the province, for sure. The uh, prevalence uh, within the population, deer population, is increasing, as is the uh, range um, mm. that you, you see them in. Most of the, the positives still seem to be in mule deer, and in particular bucks. Mm. Uh, but there certainly have been white-tailed deer as well, and I think there's been one moose and one elk Yeah, that found it. So. Mm-hmm. No, it's a concern. That one's zombie deer is a freaky thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, it's uh, it could become a major conservation issue for us. You know, yeah. as time goes forward, yeah, for sure. Well, that'll be an interesting one to try and try and battle for sure. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> no, no, I mean, neither do I for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I guess that's kind of what I'm driving at. Like, how do you, how do we measure that conservation success, right? Like, because I think about. It ties back into what we were talking about at the very, very beginning, right? Talking about our own, our own desires for certain species over others, right? And and how do we measure that success ultimately, conservation-wise? We kind of, I don't know. I'm not even sure how to ask that question. It's well, yeah. I think it's. I think it depends on who you are and what you want, what mm-hmm. you're most concerned about, right? I mean, if you want to, depends on where your baseline is. You want to go back to, you know. When Europeans first settled here, it really doesn't matter what we do. We're we're going to say we were unsuccessful at conserving what we started with, yeah. Because clearly, the, you know, everything has changed. For sure. Yeah. Um, but if you, I mean, your example, you said you'd talk to somebody who's dealing with uh, the burrowing owls. Well, I would assume their measure is how many owls do we now have on landscape after X number of years later? You know, mm-hmm. They set a goal that we're hoping to have this many breeding pairs. Mm-hmm. You hit that goal, and great, that was a success. Um, the ultimate success clearly be a completely self-sustaining population that we don't have to have a breeding program for anymore. Yeah. Um, when I look, do we ever at, see that though? Do we ever see? Uh, do we ever see sure. like an organiz- organization form to save a certain species? They they get the species up to a sustainable population, and then the, then the organization dissolves. I don't really think so. Hey, once that organization organization is going, and not not I'm not saying that's a bad thing yeah, because yeah. that organization ultimately shifts gears into something else. But but you look at um, uh, a group like the 
the um, zoo in Cal- Calgary Zoo. Sure. They're the ones, that, I'm pretty sure they're the ones that are doing the breeding program for the burring owls. Was Could that be. It was? Yeah, Could be. So. I'm not sure. Um, this is an American, the, pro- or a BC program I oh, was okay. listening to. So, yeah. so they, maybe they still are, but they were um, doing breeding programs for um, a number of, of species, mm-hmm. um, endangered species. And so, yeah, where they get to the point to say, well, this species now is okay on its own. The Obviously, the zoo doesn't dissolve, but oh, yeah. they change you know what they're focused Change on and move on yeah. to another another species so yeah that certainly happens there's no doubt about it um if you look at whooping cranes yeah you know they've come back mm-hmm. and so you know we're not doing breeding program peregrine falcons are doing very well across north america now so trumpeter swans, big trumpeter one. swans yeah yeah so although they maybe the the organizations might still exist but guaranteed not at the same level as they were before because mm-hmm. now they're just monitoring as opposed to having to breed them and worry about habitat issues and all that sort of stuff so mm-hmm. there has been a, a despite all the sort of negative we always hear about conservation issues there's there's clear evidence that we can bring species back oh for sure there's no doubt about it we've been successful in the past mm-hmm. um it's you know it takes a lot of effort mm-hmm. and a lot of time to do it but yeah. uh yeah, it can be done for so we're sure. We're better for it, for sure, right? It's the, like you said at the very beginning that ecological resilience is part of that and and you know, it's it's our it's our fault that this this happened in the first place, so it's our responsibility to make sure it it's it gets brought back, right? Absolutely. Do you think uh it seems like a lot of these species they always have like a they always have a champion, right? An organization that's formed to to push this resource and to and to and, and it's always great because it, a lot of times it ends up in conservation success and you end up bringing back a population and you maintain that population. And it's awesome. Do you think it's necessary to have an organization like that for for every species of concern? And like, should there be, like for example, should there be a a, a mule deer conservation group or a white-tailed deer conservation group or a whatever a, a short-nosed shrew or i think it's short-nosed shrew or whatever a shrew a, a, a shrew conservation group like before they become a problem should we be funneling that private those private dollars into that kind of stuff beforehand do you think that's or is there or, would the, or is there such thing as like an oversaturation of conservation efforts <laughs> oh i think there certainly can be an oversaturation for sure okay uh, no doubt about it i mean you know, if you do is just sort of talk to the general public and oftentimes people are just tired of hearing negative stuff, right? So, <laughs> uh, but uh, despite that, without champions, it doesn't necessarily have to be individual group for individual species, but without a champion for the species, um, then, you know, who cares? Oh, it has right? no voice. Exactly. No, for sure. It needs a champion, so, definitely. You know, when you look at something like mule deer, I don't think you need a mule deer conservation organization if they become an issue. You will have hunters will be that that voice, uh, Alberta Fish and Game Association, mm-hmm. or, you know, 22, 25,000 members, they will be the voice mm-hmm. that says, hey, you know, there's a reason we want to keep these now. You know, they they want uh, deer on the landscape because they're consumptive users, but mm-hmm. they care that they're there. Other non-hunters, you know, might uh, might not agree with the, the, them harvesting deer, but they're going to get the same result. The deer will main, be maintained on the landscape because mm-hmm. you have somebody there who's who's a champion of that, that animal. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly strongly believe that without some type of champion um very little happens and uh you know it it sort of disappears and you know to be honest you look at caribou it's been how many years of trying to come up with a plan to conserve them Mm -hmm. um there i would i guess there are some champions but there isn't a a specific save the caribou group that is constantly keeping in the public's eye mm-hmm. as to what's going on now, what needs to happen next. So there's a bunch what, of groups doing it. <laughs> well, well, there's a bunch of groups, but but it's something that 
I would say they're, they're small groups, not necessarily, not, not all over social media. They're not in the news every day, that sort of thing. And why imagine if that was how, would we, where we are now, 20 years later, because caribou were being looked at, being studied when I was in grad school over 20 years ago. I had friends who were working on them then. Yeah. So, you know, realistically, all that's happened in that time is numbers have started to decline and continue to decline. And certainly number of activities have been implemented, yeah. but we still haven't conserved them yet. I'll be interested so. to see if we had like a, a big push like they did for, for, for polar bears, say, right? Yeah. Like there was that big push for polar bears and all of a sudden everybody everybody cares and everybody's on top of it. Absolutely. If we saw something like that with caribou, what that impact would have on, yeah. especially Alberta, like you said, we're a province that, that's, that's very much about economic prosperity and pushing that dollar, maximizing it every time, right? And I, I, I think sometimes we, we overdo it quite a bit. I think we, we overvalue the dollar relative to the amount of conservation and other values that we can have, I think. But right. I mean, obviously economic prosperity is needed to have these values in the first place, period, like you said before. But I think sometimes we we get a little greedy and we push that that dollar value a little, you know what I mean? We, we push Absolutely. a little bit of that a little bit too much yeah. without taking into consideration the impacts that it has. Um, so it'd be interesting if we had that kind of a crazy media presence for caribou that was in everyone's face and everybody knew about it and everybody saw it was cute and, 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 and liked it and wanted it to be there. And then we heard from indigenous communities to just really get the Absolutely. outcry up. Yep. Right. And what kind of we impact we would see. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I, I totally support like the forest industry and like, and, and this kind of stuff. And, but I, I think that ultimately we, we we might need to change the way we do a lot of different stuff in the landscape, right? From oil and gas to forestry to even recreation. We need we might need to start to value these things a little bit differently and not just in the money they bring in, but I don't know. It's interesting. How do you, how do you think we begin to, to bring in those multiple use values, right? Those things that don't bring money into the economy. How do we provide value that can be accounted for and therefore act upon? You yeah. got to bring in the emotion, like we talked yeah. about at the very beginning, right? Yeah. That's that's really what how, what is the value? I don't know, but there's a lot of value to me to see a caribou stand in there. I yeah. can't put money on it. Mm -hmm. The economists will tell you they can figure out how much it's worth to me, but well, there's there, there's ecosystem, uh, what you call it, ecosystem services and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. But I mean, the, someone in the city doesn't give a shit, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. But well, but see, they do to a point, right? They still want to know that that animal's out there that they could go see it if they wanted to, as opposed to it no longer exists. Yeah. Right. That's an so interesting that's, value, right? Yeah. To, 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 to just know it exists. Never necessarily want to see one, but you know it's out there and it makes you feel good about yourself. Absolutely. And, and that's great. I, I think I think everyone has that. You're right. But how do we turn that into dollars yeah. to help save that creature, right? But that's right? where you see ad campaigns all the time on TV. Give your $20 today so to save yeah. the species you will never see. It's always money. And people, well, <laughs> a lot of times it is. Now, in, in the case of caribou, maybe it's not money. Maybe it's political pressure. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe it's a... Um, you know, we have a brand new government in, so I'm curious to see what's going to happen here. Usually when things change, you get a bunch of movement on various files. Mm -hmm. um, how, far, how far it goes, I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's just one of those things that um, I, I think without without an advocate, uh, a lot of these things sort of disappear. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It totally it, it ties all the way back into just this is about us. Yeah. It's not really about nature. It's about us and us, yeah. our, us managing our own impacts and not being so shitty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, sage grouse is another one, right? Okay. There's, there's no, there's no voice for sage grouse. Mm -hmm. They used to be a hunted species. They got taken out of a 
the, the hunting rigs. You can't hunt them, and sort of the voice for them disappeared. So, yeah. you know, the government is is working on trying to bring them back a little by little. But I don't know. Have you heard where they're at? No, no, no idea. Exactly. No and, idea. And I'm in this world. It, well, exactly, <laughs> well, exactly. Right. So it maybe we're doing well, but because it's not front of mind, because there isn't a voice, that, you know, the Save the Sage Grouse Society, mm-hmm. maybe there is, I shouldn't say that, but I've never, <laughs> I've never heard of them. Yeah. Um, they disappear. Yeah. You know, people don't think, it, you bring it up, people say, oh yeah, that's important to me. But, but not that important. But not that important. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it's just uh, sort of way way we operate as people. Yeah, yeah, beings, yeah, right? totally. Well, I mean, I think there's a, a more sustainable way forward. I think the yeah. way we, we've developed our culture is probably... A bit egotistical and not exactly, you know, we're not we're not thinking about our impact more besides the fact that we want more stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and on I, average for sure, yeah. So I, I would I wonder how we can start to change that. And I think we are. I think with the the outcome of the internet in the last thirty years we've seen a big conservation push, right? The, they just the, everyone knows about what conservation means and how how we can go about it, right? So yeah, it'd be interesting to see where we are in another 30 years as far as conservation efforts. And um, like, I mean, obviously the ACA focuses a lot on 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 game animals, right? Because that's, that's a lot of your focus, which is a big, but there's... Yeah, but we also work on, on species at risk. You know, yeah. we're, we're out there working on piping plovers. Uh, we're buying habitat for sage grouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's so there's a, we have peregrine cams out there to try to wear, raise yeah. awareness. So yeah, and all our funding comes from, from hunting and angling dollars for sure, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, I think, again, that's an example where, well, those species are doing fairly well because there's a voice there. Because there's like, a voice, like yeah. Say, if, if whitetail numbers dropped, government would hear about that right away. Big time. Um, you oh, know, yeah. whether it's a conservation issue or not, people would, would let the government know that, hey, we want something done about this. Yeah. Uh, so that, it, from that point of view, there is a value. I guess that's that's the key to it. There's a value placed on that wildlife yeah. because somebody wants it there for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Enough to want to, to do something about it. Absolutely. Not just yeah. to say, yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Which most of us do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, from your perspective, w- what do you think should change with uh, you know how we conserve lands and how we conserve species? What's the what are we doing wrong, and what are we doing very right that we need to do more of? Um, well, I think I don't know if we're doing that much wrong. We could do more of it, but one of the key areas that I see in the work that we do is, like I said before, we do a lot of work with private landowners. And if you look at the amount of agricultural land we have across the province, it's huge. Mm-hmm. If we could have, let's say, 10% of that landscape, um, I guess, converted or enhanced for wildlife values, fisheries, all that sort of thing, it'd have a huge impact. Totally. But we go to do that, you're asking an individual landowner to potentially give up part of their livelihood, part of what they could be making income for my well-being your well-being everybody sitting at edmonton's well-being so how do we how do we fix that and then, and that's back to this ecological goods and services so how do we pay that landowner mm-hmm. to make some changes on the landscape so that they're not negatively impacted mm-hmm. and we all get the the positive impact of they're now not going to plow through an ephemeral wetland they're going to mm-hmm. leave it there because we're not going to we're going to give the money to do that and on top of that, we're not going to tax them, which is a silly thing that happens now. When people set aside a wetland, don't drive through a wetland, they get taxed on that. It might not be a lot of money, but your tax on the land is on the land. It's not the land minus the wetland areas and minus areas you're not farming. The whole thing is taxed at a farm rate, regardless if it's farmed or not. Hmm. Uh, in our case, ACA buys... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so if if 
you set 10% of your land, then the taxes should drop by 10%. See, I was, I was so, thinking the opposite. I was going to say taxes. I was going to say a tax on uh, on whatever, like we were saying, the tax, like the like the Pittman-Robertson yeah, tax, yeah. right? And part of that goes towards buying up that land from well, those, Well, that's right? how we could do it. So it's right? a, a, a different yeah. application yeah. of the tax we, might actually yeah, solve this problem. Exactly. We'll pay the tax and we'll pay it back to to the individual who's set into the habitat site. ACA purchases private land, sets it aside as, as habitat, conservation lands. And then in some places, we then get a tax bill from the county as recreational land. It changes from a very low farm rate to a recreational rate. So while society overall wants conservation, some counties look at it as, well, you've taken away the ability for farmers to use that land now. Therefore, we're going to tax you like you're a guy from the big city and you're using it for recreational purposes. Yeah, see, that's that's so. that's, 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 my, that's my the ultimate point I guess I'm trying to get at is how do we change society to the point where we value conservation for conservation's sake, you know, for the sake of our, ourselves and nature and our future generations? How do we pr- put a value on that? where it can be compared to current economic prosperity. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think I think that's exactly you have to put a value on it. It's gotta cost something. It's gotta yeah. be it's gotta be worth something. How? Well that's, <laughs> <laughs> if I had that answer, I wouldn't be a biologist. I'd be running the thing, running the world. Uh, yeah, the the using taxes to pay for ecological goods and services, I think, is a good step forward. That would be certainly and and we and don't get me wrong, we got a lot of landowners who are doing this out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, they totally. they see the importance of it. They're doing it on their own, mm-hmm. and certainly, you know, we really appreciate their cooperation with it. We try to work as much with them to make changes in the landscape that that benefit their operations while at the same time benefiting wildlife and totally. and, and work. But you know, some some of the some of the things we would like to do are just a step too far. It's it's going to cost them too much, and we can't afford to pay them for that. So, mm-hmm. all right, well, fair enough. We understand that. So but that's uh, the thing. We need we, we need those those systems in place to try to, you know what I mean, uh, relieve that stress on the individual landowner or whatever, and in order to provide that benefit to everybody else. Yeah. Right. So we need. I don't know what that system looks like, but we need something there. I would think, right? Well, are you willing to pay twice as much for a loaf of bread because the bread came from a field of wheat? Right. And we want to put some money back to some of those landowners to not grow as much wheat next time, and instead mm-hmm. set aside the wetland and leave the wetland there. Yeah. Are we willing to pay more for a bottle of milk, or a jug of milk, a bottle of milk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a jug of milk because the cattle are grazing in a pasture that mm-hmm. you know could have a wetland, but if they make a wetland there, then you know the cows don't get to feed as much. So that that that's the reality, right? That yeah. that's where the cost would come for those kinds. Maybe of we should be though, right? Well, like, maybe we should, maybe. or or maybe it can be done with taxes on other things. So we're not going directly at food yeah. to people. Instead, rather than a carbon tax, we have a conservation tax. Sure. So rather than those those funds going back to what they were, we say we this is going to go on to land stuff. We're going to mm-hmm. pay for ecological goods service, which in reality could have the same impact we're looking for to try to reduce our carbon footprint yeah wetlands suck up a lot of carbon grasslands suck up a lot of carbon Mm -hmm. could we pay farmers to grow grow grass to suck up carbon instead Mm -hmm. those kinds of ideas totally well that's the thing we've gotten into a society of we're all about efficiency for i mean and we're promoting a a giant amount of population so it makes sense that we need efficiency to make that work but yeah like what's the cost of that right the cost of efficiency is that diversity right and so it's I mean, at least from a land perspective, right? So, Absolutely. 
Yeah, whole other conversation there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, just, I guess that was the whole point of me. I wanted to have this conversation with you, right? It's just trying to suss out how we view conservation, how we can promote it, how we can change it to make sure that it's going in the right direction and valuing the appropriate values in the appropriate way, right? Yeah, and that's under the assumption that the values you and I have are appropriate. And that's what I'm saying, right? right? So, what do we, how do we know that our values yeah, are actually and, the right values? And we, and we don't, and that's why, right? It, yeah. Until someone convinces you of a different value, your values are right. Mm-hmm. Until you're told, someone says, oh, oh, yeah, okay, maybe I'll change my values now. But otherwise, if you have a value, you have it because it's right. Yeah. You don't have, you, nobody has a value because they know it's wrong. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's no, why, that's sure. what your value is. And that's exactly the problem. Yeah. So it is a, um, as I always tell my biologists, is marketing game. How do you how do you sell your value system to somebody else and convince them that that is the more appropriate value system? Yeah, you get into wildlife biology to be outdoors and you end up being a marketer. That's <laughs> and and that's what I've argued that that's where our I think our young biologists fall down now when they come out of schools. They don't have any of that that type of training. And how do you talk to the general public? How do you yeah, market the value you have or the importance of biodiversity, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things. It's not courses we take when you no. become biologist. Well, you, 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 yeah, you want to learn about the cool stuff, right? Yeah. What's the science? What's Absolutely. the population dynamics? Why does this happen here? What's the relationships, right? Yeah. And then you don't think about the, you think about the funding as being the business side. And, oh, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that kind of thing, right? But ultimately, none of this happens without that funding. And then it's, you know, yeah. okay, now I need to be a marketer. And that's, yeah. yeah, it's a whole, it's a weird it's it's not sexy to think about having to find money. No, one day you wake up, you're 40, and no longer doing biology. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> and yeah. that's exactly how it happens. But that's the reality of working on a, I guess, working in a working landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, if we were out in a pristine landscape, yeah, we'd be doing as biologists what we got into it for: playing with the animals, mm-hmm. capturing them, measuring them, you know, tickling yeah. them, whatever, and letting them go again, mm-hmm. uh, following them around. But we're in a working landscape which means that we're dealing with people more than wildlife. Mm. So how do, how do we talk to them about that? And I think, uh, and from my perspective as a biologist, some of it is also sort of taking a step back and realizing that maybe my values aren't necessarily or need to be pushed on everybody else. Maybe I could bend a little on my, my values. Mm. Conservation doesn't have to be pristine wilderness. Mm-hmm. You know, I can work with a, a cattle rancher and we can look at having a 25-meter buffer along the creek that runs through his land, mm-hmm. and we'll provide him an off-water, off-site watering system. And now we've conserved something. We've conserved a riparian area. We've mm-hmm. improved water quality. We've helped fisheries. So, mm-hmm. so that's a slight. That's a. I, I've come from a young biologist where no, if it's not pristine landscape, and I can look around in all directions without seeing a single building, it's mm-hmm. not conservation. To all right, there's cows on one side of the fence. There isn't on the other. We've now conserved something. Yeah. No, for sure. So it's I, I I totally agree. Like that pristine wilderness, and I like to put it in quotations yep. because pristine. I don't know, like what you know what I mean. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. It's hard to point out where what does that, that is, exist, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's a really sexy idea, and it's romantic, and uh, it's it's it, they tend to be beautiful. You know what I mean? I think about mountain landscapes yep. where you don't see a you know a cut line or a cut block or a road or other people. You don't see evidence of garbage and stuff like that, but. It, but yeah, is does that is that any more valuable than than conserving that land? You know, integrated within our our, our urban world, right? So yep. it's and probably not, right? Like it's just they, they yeah, it's interesting. 
I like that though. I like, I like that, that way of thinking about it, right? Is that there's a, there's an impact that we have being integrated on the landscape and we can just by making small changes, we can have a really big positive impact on not just, not just nature, but on society as well. Right. Like you said, just protecting that riparian area. Sure. It's great for, you know, some of the, some of the waterfowl or maybe, maybe muskrats or beavers or whatever. Right. And it's, and it's good for water, but it's also good for, like you said, for water quality and it's reducing the, the, the cost on society directly by, you know, filtering out some of those, those, uh, that erosion and that kind of stuff. Right. So there's, it, it all comes down to values again, right? Like yeah. it's just, it's just those, it's interesting that we have all these values, but we fail to convert a lot of those values into monetary, monetary perspective, right? But they have a monetary cost, they but they're cost. just, yeah. but they're just not being directly associated with our impact. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and that's where, I mean, after the, the floods down in Calgary and where a lot of groups started to go was looking at, or the values are wetlands to mm-hmm. prevent a flood like that. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden there was a good example of, look, had we had X number of wetlands, we would reduce the amount of water on the landscape by this much. And then right. an actual dollar amount could be attached to it. Right. Uh, so I think after that happened in Calgary, the importance of, of wetlands on the landscape had a much higher profile. Yeah. And certainly within that entire watershed, there's been a number of different programs out there trying to encourage that. Makes sense because so, instead all we have is hard banks where exactly. water bounces off of and then just accumulates and just blows out of proportion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and certainly there's been a number of different research projects looking at the cost savings to water treatment plants if the water is filtered naturally in the first place before it gets into the river into the water treatment yeah, plant. Yeah, it's a huge right? cost in society. Yeah. So that, and but again, that's not where biologists come from. Right? No. We need to We need to figure out What's the marketing key? Well, the marketing would be figure out what is the value, what is the actual monetary value of wetland. So mm-hmm. we got to work with an economist to figure that out yeah. and then say, okay, this is, you know, 50 or $500 an acre is what this wetland is worth. Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's see if we can put some in. And, you know, in that case, I would argue, well, then I come to the city of Edmonton and say, well, if we get this wetland put in by Farmer Joe, mm-hmm. it saves you 500 bucks a, an acre. Mm-hmm. How much are you, the city, willing to put in that? And the city goes back to its residents and say, well, here's why we're doing it. So mm-hmm. we're going to jump your taxes by a buck each, and we're going to get this many wetlands upstream. And everybody's and, pissed. And, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's, but, you know, yeah, that's you know, that disconnect from nature. We see ourselves as other than nature somehow, yep. right? We're not, yep. we don't recognize our impact and the cost it has on our society and everything else. And it's, that's the thing. I think ultimately, if we're conserving land and we're doing what's best for, quote unquote, the natural world, we're doing what's best for us at the same state immediately and for the future, right? Like that's, it's, that's the truth of it, right? So, yeah. Man, we really screw things up, aren't we? Don't we? <laughs> <laughs> we manage to take something simple, and then we're just like, "Well, well, we just make it worse." Yeah, Let's, uh, <laughs> yeah there's no doubt about it. Actually, yeah, oh, it's chaos. Yeah. But any, uh, you got any final thoughts? Any final words of wisdom you want to throw out there? Um, well, I think I don't know the words of wisdom, <laughs> but I mean, I've got uh, two kids, twenty and twenty-one, and of course, they've grown in a ha- up in a household with biologists. My wife is a biologist as well. And so I try to stress to them as, as much as uh, we as uh, parents and biologists uh, complain about how bad things are, they're not as bad as what they seem. There's still lots of positive going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, as human beings, there's no problem that we can't solve with enough time and money. Oh, I, I agree it's, with that. So We're very innovative people. Absolutely. Right? We, yeah. If we run across a problem that 
costs us a lot of money, we find a solution really damn quickly. Exactly. Right? So. Like it's, we've seen it time and time again. And I, I totally believe in our capacity to pull it off with when it comes to endangered species and that kind of stuff. Like it's, no, I think it's great. I have, I have a huge amount of faith in the human, you know, in the human race when it comes to down to crunch time. It's just those, those intermittent times where yep. we seem to just screw the pooch for a while. Yeah, waiting we... for crunch. Yeah. 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 If we could only plan to just do it before the crunch came, it'd be a lot simpler for everybody. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. Like we just, we don't want to take action until we have no other choice. Absolutely. If we could just do it beforehand, we wouldn't run into such high costs. That's right. Oh <laughs> uh, man. Okay. Awesome. That All was right. a long conversation. I yeah, liked it was it. good. It was good. I'm not sure if I, I, I mean, I'm so goddamn tired that I haven't been <laughs> able to come up with a single <laughs> sentence that makes any sense, right? Like I'm very disappointed in my capacity to form a sentence for this, for this hour and a half conversation, but you pulled it off. So yeah. it's good. No, it's <laughs> It's good. I mean, we went all over the place, which is what I expected on, you know, what is conservation. It's yeah. It's all you, over. How do you wrap it up? Right? Absolutely. So, awesome, man. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. This is great. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. I hope you like that. Uh, I know I really enjoy talking to Todd. He's got a, a cool perspective. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. And uh, if you guys have any questions or concerns or whatever, just shoot me an email, yourforcepodcast at gmail.com. Remember to rate and review. Really helps me out. And I uh, appreciate the support, guys. So we'll uh, we'll catch you in a couple weeks. Take it easy.